If you have your Bibles, open them up and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. The first chapter in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Um, my sermon's not going to have the same uh, level of uh, density as maybe it normally would because we got the kids in here. So um, I'm going to be moving at a quicker pace. So I would love for you to be able to follow along here in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, this is going to be like a standalone sermon. We're not in a sermon series on this Sunday. This is kind of the, the intern Sunday. This is the Sunday that I cut my teeth in preaching and, and teaching because, uh, you know, the 31st or the, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, uh, it's usually light, lightly attended, and so a lot of churches have their interns take the, uh, that intern slot, um, and so I'm, I'm getting an opportunity to go back to my roots here and, and preach on this Sunday. I'm excited about it. So um, we're going to have a standalone sermon this Sunday, and then, and then next week we're going to start a new sermon series that's going to take us through January. Uh, we typically take the month of January to focus on spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation, spiritual habits, to sort of piggyback on the cultural conversation around New Year's resolutions, but we like to try to uh, reorient that to spiritual formation. And so we're going to do that, and we're going to focus on the topic of giving. Uh, we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines related to your finances, stewardship, frugality, generosity, those sorts of things. Uh, but this Sunday, uh, as we are entering into the first of the year, the new year, I thought we would be well served to remember, uh, like I shared with the kids, uh, who is first? Who is first and foremost in our lives? As we think about our goals, as we think about things that we uh, maybe we want to achieve this year, things that we want to do different in our own personal lives and our personal formation. Uh, we want to make sure that we do not miss the one who is always first and foremost, and that is, is Jesus. And so, um, you know, I was traveling for, for the holidays, and uh, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but I always find myself when I'm on long drives kind of sizing up the other drivers. And, you know, especially on long drives, I kind of work out these competitions in my mind. Like, all right, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this lane and I'm going to make it to that exit before that guy over there. Like, what's this guy doing? He's like swerving all over the place, you know. Or maybe I have to take a detour, right? There's traffic. We're going to go around it. I'm like, all right, hey, babe, keep an eye on that 18-wheeler because we're going to see if we can beat him when we get back on the highway. You know, I'm talking about you make up these sort of competitions. We're getting food. We're, we're rolling up to this fast food restaurant and the drive through line is super long. And I'm like, I don't want to wait. We got to go in. We got to get our food right now. All right, take a look at that red, red car. Nikki's like, no, the drive through is always fastest. I'm like, no, watch that red car. We're going to go in, and we're going to be out of here before they are. And so we park, and we go in, and of course, it takes way longer going inside. Uh, but, but we do this not just because uh, we're hungry to get our food first. Uh, we do this because we're hungry for glory. Uh, I do this because I'm hungry for glory. I want to be first. I want to win, right? I, I want to get to the exit before that guy. I want to drive better than that guy. I want to get my food before that guy. What motivates me is a desire for, for glory, for the honor that comes from winning, from being first. I think this hunger for glory is often what motivates New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, we want to be the best, or at the very least, we want to be the best version of ourselves, 
right? So we exercise, we commit to eat well, we, we read more, we travel, we invest our resources more strategically. We're chasing after glory. We want to win. And this morning we need to remember that the only one who ultimately wins and wins for us and for our salvation is Jesus, the incarnate son of God, first and foremost. He is the glorious one. He's the one that, that, our, that our hearts are, are longing for when we have this desire for glory. And so what I want to do is read Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, and I want to illustrate that to you briefly, and then we'll be done. Read with me again, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, protocons, preeminent, the first one. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to remember this as we enter into the first of the year that Jesus is first and foremost. Jesus is the glorious one. Jesus is preeminent, is the language that's used there. He is preeminent over all of creation and he is preeminent over our salvation. And he invites us to make him preeminent, make him first in our hearts. Brief background here, uh, Paul is writing to a church in Colossae, he's never been to this church, um, but this man, Epaphras, spent some time with him, uh, learned the faith, went back to Colossae, started basically a Bible study, and this church was planted in the city of Colossae. Uh, at the time, in this area, there were uh, teachers that were uh, referred to, historians refer to them as Gnostic teachers. Uh, they affirmed this way of thinking called Gnosticism. Now, we could get all tangled up in this. I want to give you just a, a real brief snapshot of what Gnosticism is because it's going to relate uh, later in the sermon. But uh, Gnosticism was basically this idea that the created world is bad. The physical world is bad. The spiritual world is good. Okay? Because Jesus is in the, the, the spiritual world uh, or the physical world, he, he, he can't be God. He can't be the one true and living God, the creator of all things, because God wouldn't enter into this uh, messed up creation. He, he wouldn't enter into the physical world. In fact, he wouldn't even create the physical world. The Gnostics taught that there were all these sub-mini-gods, uh, these manifestations of God, and one of these little sub-mini-gods created the physical world, right? And so really what Jesus is doing is trying to teach us how to escape from this physical material world so that we can become little spiritual gods alongside of him. Okay, 
this is really not too dissimilar from uh, what what Mormons believe. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Gnostic roots in in Mormonism, um, and so what Paul is doing is he's writing this letter to say, no, that's not true. Jesus actually was unique. Jesus actually was God, and Jesus actually is 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 not trying to to escape us out of the physical world. He's trying to redeem it. And so he enters in here with this, this picture of, of Jesus in verse 15 as the, the image of the invisible God. He's not one of many little sub-gods, but he's the image, the reflection of the one true invisible God. That's a big deal. He's different. He's unique. He's not one of many. He's not one of many. He is the true and living God. And he's the firstborn. Look at it there. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the, he's the firstborn of all creation. Protokos, firstborn, related to this, this idea of preeminence. The word preeminence later in the passage is proteon. So proteon, protokos, you see the, the, the first part of that word is the same. It means first, right? He's the, he's the first one. And when we read firstborn, firstborn of all creation, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of folks like, like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the uh, perhaps even modern day kind of Gnostic universalists uh, would read this and would be like, yeah, see, Jesus was created. He was the, the firstborn of creation. He was born as a created being, firstborn. Uh, but we have to remember firstborn, protokos, in, in biblical times meant more than just uh, chronologically first, the one that was born first. It meant uh, a place of status. Right? To be the firstborn meant that you were the heir. You were preeminent. You were, you were the one with all the status and all the privileges. Right? This is why God refers to Israel as his firstborn of all nations. Right? That their status is unique in God's eyes among, among the nations in the Old Testament. This is why even though Jacob uh, and Esau, Jacob was not the firstborn son chronologically, he was the firstborn son covenantally. Right? He had the, the status and the privileges of the firstborn. And so that's, that's the idea here, that, that Jesus is the, the firstborn in the sense that he is, he is preeminent. He is the one who has all the privileges and all the this, this status. It's all summed up in him. And this word uh, of all creation, I think, would be better translated in some of the other translations go here. Uh, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. The word is pases, over. Uh, and why? Why is Jesus the firstborn of all creation? Well, we have this, uh, this word there in verse 16, for, that's hati, means because. He's the firstborn, he's preeminent, he has all the status over all creation because it's by him that all things were created. And, and in opposition to the Gnostics, not just things in heaven, but also things on earth. He created everything. He cares about the, the physical, material universe. He created all things, things in heaven and things on earth, both the visible things and the invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The, what's referred to there um, is, is spirit beings, thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities. Uh, that's referring to spirit beings, not just earthly rulers and authorities, but, but spiritual rulers and authorities. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, hey, hey, the Gnostic teachers are wrong. Jesus is not just one of many rulers and, and authorities in the spiritual realm. He's the one who created them. He, he's not Satan's brother. He created Satan. 
right? He's not one of these many angels, not one of these many gods. He is the one who created everything, including the rulers and the authorities. All things, it says there at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. It's also important to recognize that he's not just the creator of, of, of things that we would deem to be good, uh, like the good holy angels. He's also the, the creator of demons. Uh, who created the demons? Who created Satan? Jesus did. Who, who rules over and, and, and holds the leash to, to the demons and to Satan? Jesus does. Jesus is the one who is over everything. And not only did he create everything, but he created everything for himself. All things were created through him and for him. Everything. The demons are created for the glorification of the Son of God. Satan exists to bring glory to Jesus. Your suffering exists to bring glory to Jesus. Everything. Whether we deem it good or bad, everything and all of creation exists to bring glory to the Son of God. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the supreme Lord of all things. And in him, it says, all things hold together. Your life, your plans, your, your habits, your goals, your spiritual formation, your growth, your suffering, all of it is held together in the palm of Christ's hand. Jesus is the supreme Lord of all things. Now, if that's all we had, that'd be like, wow, that's just kind of overwhelming. That's just kind of overwhelming. He's transcendent. He's big. He's in authority. That's intense. That's immense, right? This humbles us. But it goes on because Jesus is not just the supreme Lord. He's also the sufficient Savior. He's not just the supreme Lord. He's also the sufficient Savior. He's not just the one who's transcendent over all things, but he's the one who stepped into the created world in order to bring about our redemption because he loves us. If that first point, point humbles us, this second point exalts us and encourages us. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. This is a, a, a mirror of verse 15. Image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation, head of the body, the church, firstborn from the dead. Okay? Uh, you could think of it like... Um, this is kind of a crude analogy, but you could think about if you were to draw a little stick figure with a really long neck <laughs> and the head is kind of in the clouds and the body is down here on the earth. That's sort of a, a visual picture of what we're talking about here. Jesus is the head of his body, the church that fills the earth. We are connected to him. He's not just big. He's not just supreme. He's not just transcendent. He's not just Lord up there and out there. He is intimately connected to us in the same way that your head is connected to your body. He is intimately connected to the church. And just as he was the, the beginning, the firstborn, the preeminent one, the source of all creation, he's also preeminent, firstborn, beginning, source of the new creation, the recreation, the resurrected creation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, 
Jesus is the first one to, to rise from the dead to never die again. To usher in this, this new reality where we can have new resurrection life in our souls and one day have resurrection life physically forever. Right? This is the idea that Jesus crossed the finish line. We're on his team. And so we get to reap the benefits of his victory. We get to reap the benefits of his redemption and destruction of death. He has qualified us to share in his inheritance. So uh, he's the uh, source of the new creation. Everything, both the natural creation and the supernatural recreation belong to Jesus. I want your vision of Jesus, the one who walked through Jerusalem and, and, and dined with, with sinners and prostitutes and loved them and cared for them and healed the sick, that this Jesus, he is the one who is over all. He's over your life. He's over every bit of it. For all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Think about this. He, he stepped into the world that he made because he loves us. This would have been radical to the Gnostics. No, no, no. The transcendent God can't have anything to do with the material world. Those categories don't mix. The transcendent and the eminent don't mix. I have a friend who's, who's a, uh, he's kind of a, a Buddhist mystic. We've been talking about the gospel, and one of his hang-ups is that he... Um, he doesn't believe in this creator-creature distinction. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he, do, he doesn't like the fact that uh, that that God would be outside of the the world that He's made. He he views God as being being in everything, in all of us. There's no distinction between between us and God, and that would be kind of the opposite of, uh, in some ways, of of how the Gnostics were thinking. This great separation. But see, both the the imminent. God being kind of bound up in the world that he made and the transcendent being outside of and over it, those two things correspond and communicate, come together in the person of Christ. No other religious system is able to, to bridge the transcendent and the imminent gap. This, this God who's outside and yet within, this God who's above and yet with, we see it here in Christ. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person, the human person of Jesus Christ in order to make peace by the blood of his cross. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did he have to do it this way? Why did he have to come into uh, the created world and, and shed physical blood in order to secure our redemption? Well, friends, we, we are sinners. Like, uh, we, we are imperfect. We, we rebel against the God of the universe. And you may think of yourself as a good person, right? You might uh, look at yourself in comparison to the people around you, to your neighbors, and think, well, at least I'm better than those guys. But in comparison to a holy God, friends, we all fall short. And the day is coming when our whole life, every thought, Every deed, every action, every 
every emotion, every moment of, of vanity and pride, all of it is going to be played before us like a movie. And we're going to see how we stack up in comparison to a holy God. And friends, on that day, we will be exposed. We will be exposed. And because God is perfect and God is just, he has to do something about that. He's not the sort of judge that can just hand wave things away and say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. That's not who he is. He's just. The, the penalty has to be paid. And so he had to step in to, to, to share in our station, to, to, to qualify as a representative of the human race so that he could go and pay the penalty that, that we owed, which was our life. And Jesus went to the cross. He shed his blood. He died. And then he rose from the dead, thus God saying, I, I've accepted the sacrifice. I've accepted the payment. It's good. And now because of his victory, we get to share in his resurrection life. And he did all of this because he loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. So the supreme Lord over all things is also the sufficient savior of all things. The lion is also the lamb. That first point, it, it humbles us. We need to submit all of our lives, everything that we do, everything that we are committed to, to him. And this second point exalts us. God came down to lift us up that we would share in his victory. And all of it, all of it is for the purpose of his glory, the glorification of the son. How do we respond to this? Why does this matter for us? Uh, keep reading verses 21 to 23, and then I'm, gonna, and then I'm gonna be done. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled or brought together in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What this looks like for us is it looks like reaping the benefits of Jesus' victory. It looks like sharing in his victory. It looks like receiving reconciliation, that we would be reconciled through his death, that we would uh, become holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It looks like sharing in the victory of Jesus. Jesus wins. He conquered. And we get to share in it because we're on his team. We're wearing his jersey. His victory is ours. His resurrection is ours. And we can be confident that he will give it to us. And then the next thing that I want to say, just as we move into the, to the new year, is to remember your first love, to remember your first love. What we've seen here uh, in this brief time in this text is that Jesus is first. He's first and foremost. He's first and foremost over creation, and he's first and foremost in our salvation. And how we can respond to this is by keeping him first in our hearts, by remembering our first love. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus was talking to the church in Ephesus, and he said, hey, you're doing a bunch of cool stuff, you're doing a bunch of good things, but you have forgotten your first love. And friends, I think this is a temptation for us as we enter the new year, 
to be, to be committed to new plans, maybe new goals, maybe new habits, even things that are going to, God willing, make us healthier. And in so doing, in doing things that are good, we miss our first love. We miss Jesus in all of it. And what he becomes, just like for the Gnostics, is he becomes one of many avenues to a flourishing life. One of many avenues to glory. One of, of many avenues to blessing. One of many avenues to flourishing. One of many avenues to health. But he's not one of many. That's the whole point that Paul wrote this letter. He's not one of many. He's over all of it. Life is not just a series of pools. You got your exercise pool, your, your diet pool, your relationships pool, uh, your, your reading and learning pool. And we kind of jump in and out of them and we try to invest in these different things. And then, and then we've got our, our spiritual life and our, and our Jesus pool over here. And we kind of jump in and out of these pools various times, commit to them in various ways. He's not one of many friends. Life is like this, this river and, and the source of all of it, the wellspring of all of it is Christ. And we would do well as we think about our lives, as we think about the new year, as we think about things that we want to change, we would do well to, to work upstream, right? To, to work upstream where Jesus is first, where he is the source. You, you work on your relationship with Jesus, you work on knowing him, walking with him, submitting to him, seeing his glory in your life, and it's going to flow downstream to, to your physical health. It, it's going to flow downstream to, to your reading habits. It's going to flow downstream to these, to these other things. If we, if we keep Jesus first, we'll get all of these second things thrown in, as C.S. Lewis says. Do not enter the new year and miss your first love. Forget your first love. Forget the Lord who is over all. Satan is a, a covert operative. He loves to take down your faith from the inside without you even realizing it. He loves to masquerade as an angel of light. He loves to tell you that all these things that you're doing, all these things that you're engaged in, we just slap the Jesus sticker onto it and, and we're good. No. He's not one of many avenues to health and glory and flourishing. He is the avenue to a better life, to an abundant life, to salvation. So friends, would just encourage you as we enter the new year to submit your habits, your dreams to him. Even if all those things were to come true, but your relationship with Jesus was lacking, all of it's meaningless. Do not forget your first love. He loves you with an everlasting love. May we put him first in our hearts where he belongs. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are, that you are the creator and sustainer of all things for your glory, that you are the Savior, the Redeemer of all things, including us, for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that you would, would help us to see you and to savor you as the supreme Lord, as the preeminent one, and give you the glory and the honor that is your due. And I thank you that you've earned it. 
by stooping down and loving us, shedding your blood for us, walking with us, healing us, rising us from the dead. You are a, a worthy Lord, a worthy God, a worthy King. Help us to keep you first as we enter into this new year. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.